I'm so glad you connected in today. We're beginning a 10-week series based on the book, The Problem of God, that answers uh, many challenging questions that skeptics have of Christianity. And today, in the first message, we're talking about the problem of Jesus. We actually have 10 copies of this book to, to give away. Uh, Canadian residents only, please, and only to people who are exploring Christianity from the standpoint of uh, of not yet convinced, okay? So thank you, Christians, for, uh, for respecting that. But if you have questions about it, we, what it means to be a, a Jesus follower, um, to the first 10 people that text the word seeking to the number in the description uh, or on the screen there, uh, we want to send a copy to you. The first 10 people who text the word seeking. Uh, we're happy to give this to you. If you're in uh, Beaumont, Alberta, like we are, we'd even deliver it to your door. So again, if you're seeking answers to Christianity and want a Problem of God book, first 10 people, uh, text away. So, you got a problem with God? You're not alone in that. Former atheist Mark Clark, the author of this book, The Problem of God, uh, and just so you know, we got his permission to use uh, all of his material in this, in this series. He very graciously allowed that. The book addresses some of the most common challenges, as we've said already, to Christianity that skeptics or seekers have. And he, he writes from the standpoint of someone who wrestled with these big questions as an atheist and came to be convinced of the truth of Christianity. We'll address various objections over these 10 weeks. Uh, next week, the problem of science. Uh, later, the, the problem of uh, e evil and suffering. The problem of sex. Uh, the problem of uh, exclusivity. And uh, numbers of good topics. We invite you every Sunday morning to live stream with us here, eaglemont.church at 9.50 a.m. 10 to 10 uh, each Sunday morning uh, throughout this series. Um, there's also going to be a, uh, there is now, uh, on our website, eaglemont.church, uh, a button you can click that just says Problem of God series, and there you can see all the topics and the dates, Sunday morning dates, that those topics will be addressed for yourselves, for your own information, but certainly to invite friends to be a part of this uh, experience together with us. So, let, let's begin. Some people have a big problem with Jesus. Oh, not in the way he loved people, not in the way he was always giving and caring, of course. But being God? Really? Or rising from the dead? Seriously? Fair questions. And yet these two things are life-shaping questions, eternity-shaping questions, actually, for all of us to consider. Because if Jesus is, in fact, God, who came in human flesh, and if he did, in fact, rise from the dead after being crucified, then he is more than worthy of the surrender of my life and the surrender of everything about my life, and he's worthy of my worship and yours as well. And that doesn't have to be a scary thing. When you, when you come to know God as he is, a loving, compassionate God, that does not have to be a scary thing. But I would say this, that you owe it to yourself. If, if you're not a Christ follower, if you're skeptical or you're, you've got legitimate questions, you're not sure, you're you know, working at connecting the dots on this, this Christian message and who Jesus was, 
I would just say that you owe it to yourself to honestly seek answers to such important questions. Mark Clark, again, the author of this book, talks about his own journey of searching for answers from the perspective of an atheist who was raised in the home of an atheist father. And even as an atheist, uh, Clark rightly observes that he believed in, uh, or that rather, uh, believing in everything, he said this in, his, in the introduction of his book, that believing in everything, or believing that everyone is right, no matter what their views are about God, he says, that seemed weak and absurd is the word he used. And I agree with him. Uh, British intellectual uh, writer and philosopher uh, G.K. Uh, Chesterton in the early 1900s simply said, to believe in everything is the same as believing in nothing. In other words, it's a cop-out. So you owe it to yourself to find answers, and answers are there. Mark Clark writes about standing in a lonely funeral home after his dad passed away. And it was then that these big questions began to uh, flood his mind and he began to uh, ask himself well, you know, what he actually believed uh, about God, about eternity, uh, about morality and all of these questions. So in this series, I encourage you to lean in to your, to your doubts by exploring and, and asking questions. And that applies to, to all of us, whether we're uh, a Christ follower or not. Uh, the, the, the testimony of the author of The Problem of God is that the more he did that, the more he asked questions, the more he genuinely sought answers to big questions, the more he began to see, he said, both the power and the soundness of Christianity. And like many others before him, he came to realize that science is, is not opposed to faith. He came to see the, the reliable evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. He came to see that Christianity stood apart from other world religions in its legitimacy because of Jesus. Years ago, former TV and radio host Larry King was asked, if you could interview one person in all of history, who would it be? Without hesitation, he said, Jesus Christ. And then he was asked, well, what if you could, one question, if you could ask him just one question, what would that question be? He said this, he said, uh, I would ask him if he was really born of a virgin because the answer to that question changes everything, he said. And he's absolutely right about that. The question about who Jesus is is a question that has huge bearing on our life and our eternity. And so please stop and think about this. It's it's crucial that we give serious thought to this question of who is Jesus. Not uh, who do I think Jesus is, because any one of us can give, you know, start to give our reflective responses uh, to, to the question about Jesus, and, and some do, and some do so without looking at the historical and reliable data of the New Testament, which is accurate and verifiable history of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, and you'll have the opportunity to explore that aspect of it, uh, the biblical record, a little more in the, the problem of the Bible, which is two Sundays from today. Now, I recognize that it's Easter Sunday morning. By the way, happy Easter. I didn't say that. Uh, yeah, it's Easter and not Christmas. But we must still begin briefly with this question about the birth of Jesus. Was it a miraculous birth? Namely, was he, was he really born of a virgin? I mean, how does that happen? Um, 
it's the top question that Larry King would ask Jesus if he could. And, and we can actually ask that question since there's a reliable document called the New Testament that many scholars and experts and, and even many who are not uh, Christians would still argue for the reliability of the, uh, the, the historical record of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. That may surprise you, but, but it's true. We're not going to park long on dissecting the virgin birth question because if, if we can see uh, that Jesus, in fact, is God, then virgin birth is, is not a big leap. It's, it's nothing for him. So we're going to focus on the questions of the deity of Jesus. Is he God or not? The deity of Jesus. And uh, actually, did he, did he actually rise from the dead after his crucifixion? Having said that, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus is, is vital. It's a very important thing for our eternal salvation because for Jesus to be our perfect, sinless Savior, he could not be born uh, as a result of normal human sexual relations because then he would take on or inherit the sinful nature that every other human being does, which, is a, which came to us or comes to us as a result of the, the first sinful choice of our first human parents. And that's another discussion, but you can read about that in the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. So just to be clear, Jesus came into the world in human flesh, the sinless son of God, so that, so that he could bridge. That's, that, that was God's purpose, because we needed a bridge to, uh, to, to bring us across the great chasm, the great gap that was between us and God, that is between us and God uh, if, if we don't respond to Christ. Um, it's, very, it's the very thing that needs to be removed, sin. The very thing that need, needs to be removed for us to enter into a personal and eternal relationship with this loving God who created us. And so, to our questions then about Jesus. All of Christianity is built on or all of Christianity crumbles to the ground as a result of what the truth is about these questions of whether or not Jesus is God and whether or not he rose from the dead. And actually, if we're, uh, if we're convinced that he's, he's God, then again, virgin birth is easy, resurrection is easy for him. Uh, as Larry King said, if that's true, then everything changes. And if Jesus is God, then the best and wisest thing that we can do is to commit our lives to him and, and follow him. That's probably why some skeptics keep saying something like, you know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that Jesus even claimed to be God. I've met people who say that, but, but sometimes they're the same people who, who haven't looked into the New Testament record of the things Jesus said. Uh, crazy things, actually, if Jesus knew he was not God, but was still speaking the things that he was speaking. Expressed doubt about Jesus being God can, in fact, sometimes be a smokescreen to keep a safe distance from even the idea of having to surrender one's life to God. And I, I hope that's not you. I hope you're, you're more honest with yourself than that. Some people uh, show respect to the historical person of Jesus by saying that he was a good teacher, and he was. But they, those same people often 
would not worship or follow him because they don't believe that he's God. So, with that in mind, the first question to address is, does the historical record of the New Testament show that Jesus Christ claimed to be God? Does it show Jesus um, claiming deity, which is the, the nature and attributes of God, claiming that for himself? If Jesus claimed to be God, but, but in fact was not, he's no longer a good teacher. He's a deceptive teacher even an immoral, an immoral teacher. We, we can't call someone good if they're lying about who they are. So let's see what Jesus actually said about who he was. And if in the process uh, you're convinced, maybe even against everything you hope for or you hope to see. And I know you're taking a, a, a courageous step as a seeker in this. And so I, I, I commend you. Way to go for that. Uh, keep asking those honest questions. That's uh, so, so cool. But if it becomes clear to you in the process that Jesus actually did claim to be God, then, like all of us, you do have a, a big decision to make. You really do. Um, and that decision has to do with who should be the leader of your life. You or Jesus. So, let's take a look. Some say that because there's no recorded phrase, uh, and Mark Clark in the book points this out, uh, that there's no recorded phrase in the gospel narratives. And by gospel narratives, I simply mean the four uh, narratives of, of the record, the historical record of Jesus' life by four different individuals, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first four books of the New Testament. But some say that because there's no recorded phrase in these gospel accounts where Jesus puts these three words together, I am God, and just says it that straight. They say that then he never claimed to be God. Well, it's true. There's no, uh, there's no record, that at least a recorded uh, a writing of it. Maybe he did, but not everything that Jesus said and did was recorded either. Um, it, it's, it's true, though, that there's no record in the Gospels that Jesus said those precise words together. I am God. But, as Clark puts it, that's a far cry from saying that he did not claim to be God. So to the skeptics' assessment that, that Jesus never claimed to be God, let's look at just a few examples of, of many from the historical record of the New Testament that tell another story. First of all, John 8, uh, 57 to 59 says this, the, the people, and the people they're referring to the Jews and the Jewish people and Jewish leaders, said to Jesus, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? In the preceding verses, Jesus refers, makes a reference to, the, to Abraham and kind of indicates that he's had some interaction with, with Abraham. Very interesting. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am, is what he said. Kind of a strange little phrase. Well, at that point, verse 59 of uh, the, uh, John's record, at that point, they picked up stones to throw at him. So, here, Jesus is claiming that he existed before he was born into the world in Bethlehem, which is the Christian message that theologians call the incarnation, God coming in human flesh. 
Then Jesus stresses in this passage in John 8, um, you, you need to write that those verses down to make sure you have an opportunity later to just, just ponder them a little bit. John 8, 57 to 59. Um, but Jesus stresses his point further by saying that he existed even before Abraham's time in, in verse 58. And the Jews to whom Jesus was talking uh, knew that Abraham lived over 2,000 years before Jesus walked the earth the Jesus that was right before them, and yet Jesus claims to have existed before him. Uh, that, that claim came out of the mouth of Jesus, but if it were not true, Jesus, he must have been delusional. Or maybe he was, maybe he was outright lying. And if he was lying, again, no one can call him a good teacher. But again, what did Jesus say? John 8, 58 key phrase that Jesus used, two simple words, I am. The application of these two words may be unfamiliar to us, but when he spoke these words, the Jews at that time, they knew exactly what he was saying because it was the exact phrase that God had spoken to Moses at the famous burning bush incident back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse uh, 14, early in the Old Testament, where th there's the historical record of when God was sending Moses to be the deliverer of his people, the Israelites, out of slavery um, under the hand of the, the Egyptians. And, and Moses was concerned, you know, he just wanted to know who, who's got my back. Who's the authority that I'm going to do this, this mission? And so he said to God, who will I say sent me? Who are you? Who, who, I want to make sure that this voice I'm hearing is actually the God that, uh, that I trust. Who will I say sent me? Well, God replied with a phrase that meant a lot in the Jewish understanding of who God was. And it was one of the most sacred names of God uh, to refer. It referred to the one and only true God of Israel. And the phrase there in Exodus 3 that Jesus pulled from, uh, that God said to Moses was, I am that I am. I am that I am. Or I am who I am. It's just, I am. I am God. Simply put, I am almighty God of the universe. I am creator of all things. I am pre-existent God, existent from eternity past, which is a characteristic of God, of course. I, I, I have always been. I just, I simply am. It's kind of what God was saying to Moses. And so here in John 8, 58, Jesus applies this little, uh, th this title rather, directly to himself. And he had every right to do so, even though he was born in human flesh as a man, as a human being. He also pre-existed, the Bible teaches, as God from eternity past. And that's, whether we believe Jesus or not, it's undeniable that that is what he was saying. There's no question that the, that the Jews that he was talking to, Jesus was talking to, they just knew exactly what he was claiming. And we know this from their reaction because we, we read it there in verse uh, 59. They picked up stones to kill him and they were acting in obedience to their Jewish law. Stoning, killing by, by stones uh, was uh, the penalty for, for blasphemy, which was claiming attributes and claiming the nature of God for oneself. And remember, the point here, it's not what the Jews thought about Jesus. We're, we're talking about what actually 
did Jesus claim? The Jews knew exactly what he was claiming. Second example from John's, again, John's historical record of the life of Jesus in John 17, 5. Jesus is speaking to God the Father. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Did you catch that? Before the world existed, he said. Jesus says he existed with God the Father before the world was created. And again, existing from eternity past is only a characteristic of God. So then Jesus is, you know, is either, again, self-deceived, maybe is he a little mentally unstable, isn't he not really aware? Or is he, is he lying and he, and he knows it? Is he being deceptive? Or is he Lord and God? Again, this statement causes us to ask those questions. And then the third example is from John, again, chapter 10, verses 30 to 33. So, uh, the previous one was John 17, 5. The one before that was John 8, 57 to 59. And this one, John 10, 30 to 33. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And right away, verse 31, the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus says, well, for what good work are you still? I, I kind of think Jesus knew, but he was, he was toying with them a little bit, these religious leaders. Why, what, what good work did I do that, you're stoning me for. And they said, it's not about good works. We're stoning you, and this is what it says in verse 33, John 10. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And again, here, it's, it's not about what the Jews thought of Jesus. That's not the point that we're talking about here. It's about what they knew Jesus was claiming. That's what I want you to focus on. And the evidence that Jesus was claiming to be God is, again, seen by their response of picking up stones to kill him because in their minds, it was blasphemy. He, in their minds, he was not God. Um, and, and again, not to mention their direct statement that they made. We're going to take you out, Jesus, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They knew what he was saying. So there's more we could study here, um, but... Uh, for time's sake, we'll, we'll move on. Of course, there's the miracles that Jesus did to validate who he was. The New Testament records many eyewitnesses to Jesus doing things that only God could do, turning water to wine, healing people, even bringing back uh, people from the dead, uh, walking across a lake uh, on top of the water, those, those the, uh, just wild things. Uh, miracles that validate his, his power over everything, nature, uh, our human bodies, uh, everything. God, if he's God the creator, again, those things are, are, are no problem for him. Uh, so what made Jesus different than the others throughout history who claimed to be God? Why, why have billions followed Jesus over the 2,000 years since he walked the earth? It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection that sets Jesus apart and, and that shows he is who he claimed to be. The God who created us to enjoy a relationship with us, which is phenomenal. And the God who came in human flesh to, to reestablish uh, that relationship that was broken. And the good news that we celebrate at Easter is that in rising from the dead, Jesus demolished, literally just demolished the terrible consequences of sin. And primarily uh, the, the fact that uh, because of our sin, if it's not addressed at, at the cross and by what Jesus did and by trusting Christ, eternal separation from God our creator, 
is the trajectory we're on. And Jesus took care of that at the cross and his resurrection proved he could deal with that for us. He, at the cross, he showed his immense love and through the resurrection showed his uh, unbelievable power. It's a beautiful combination. So I want us to look at three common objections that skeptics put forward about the resurrection of Jesus. This is the latter part of the message here. Objection number one. Jesus didn't really die. This is, this is actually the official position of uh, the religion of Islam uh, and of the typical atheist as well. Jesus didn't really die. But those who, those who, have, uh, who, who express this objection... They, they realize uh, most of the time, I think, that it's difficult to argue with how many people saw Jesus alive after, at some point after he was on the cross and taken down from the cross. Um, so the easiest way for them around the, the powerful uh, eyewitness argument to, to, to the resurrection of Jesus, so the easiest, the best way for them, for them sometimes to get around that is to say that Jesus he, well, he didn't really die. He just passed out from the pain. Well, the, the vast majority of historians do not agree with this. Uh, atheist historian Gerd Ludman wrote, The fact of the death of Jesus as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable, despite hypotheses of a pseudo-death or a deception which are sometimes put forward. It need not be discussed further. Interesting comment from someone who's not a believer. You see, the Romans, they didn't, they didn't mess around when it came to their mode of capital punishment. Uh, it, it was certain death. They didn't, they didn't put a guy up on the cross and, you know, see him out playing cricket a few days later, whatever they, whatever they played back then. The idea that Roman crucifixion did not work on Jesus does not, even, does, does not hold up to historic scrutiny. Objection two, Jesus did not rise from the dead. His body was stolen and by his followers. Well, okay, Jesus died, but his disciples were part of a, were part of a scam, really, and, and stole the body and hid the lifeless body of Jesus so that others would believe what they had heard Jesus say about him coming back to life. Actually, this was... This is what Mary Magdalene first told Peter after she had seen the empty tomb in John 20, uh, verse 2. She said, they, they've taken the Lord's body from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Well, a statement like that, man, probably other thoughts that she had or reasons she said that, but that, that's got to be encouraging for some who've had questions about the resurrection, that, that even, even some of his first followers apparently struggled with thinking or really, really believing that it could be true that, that he was going to come back. He had said so, but then the tomb was empty and it's like, oh, somebody stole him. What's going on? Interesting. And I, I wonder what I would do if I was in those sandals. Um, I like what Mark Clark says here. He says, scholars point out that the resurrection narratives are trustworthy when judged by the critical methods of historical study applied to all ancient writings. 
because they contain unflattering content. So the Gospels, they do. They, they contain, because they contain uh, unflattering content portraying the disciples as scared and slow to believe, even exposing Thomas as a doubter, this suggests they are not fabrications. The New Testament Gospel accounts, that is. And one more point about this, simply, simply put as a question. Do you really think that the disciples would actually be willing later on to die as martyrs, as all of them did, to die that way for, for Jesus, some, sometimes in brutal ways? Do you think they'd be willing to die for Jesus that way if all along they knew that they were the ones who had stolen his body to make others think that he had come back to life? It's not plausible. It's really not. In an article about the resurrection from uh, Biola University, Professor Sean uh, McDowell, some of you know uh, Josh McDowell, a quote from him in a minute, uh, is his father. Sean wrote, even though they were crucified, stoned, stabbed, dragged, he's talking about the disciples later, uh, even though they were crucified, stoned, stabbed, dragged, skinned and burned, Every last apostle of Jesus proclaimed his resurrection until his dying breath, refusing to recant or, or to turn away from that position under pressure from authorities. Most, would not, most people would, would not die for what they knew was a lie. And one more thing to consider before we move to the third objection. In, in the world at that time, in that place, uh, a, a woman's perspective was not valued or sometimes even listened to if, if she was allowed to speak at all. It's just the way it was. It wasn't right. It's the way it was. So in a culture like that, if you wanted to convince people that your leader had actually been raised from the dead, but you were behind it in terms of hiding his lifeless body, you would not, you would not depend on a female to be the first eyewitness that announces that the tomb was empty. If the resurrection was a hoax this way, they would not have had a woman be the one to announce that Jesus had risen. But, but, that's, what, but that's what all four Gospels record. And why is that? Because that's what happened. And there, the writers, the Gospel writers, cared about it the integrity of what they were writing for it to be accurate history. And even though that kind of flew in the face of the culture, didn't matter. It's the way it happened, so that's what we're going to record. And in fact, that's what, that's what they did. Interesting. Objection number three, the disciples borrowed the idea of the resurrection. Well, the, the idea here is that the disciples simply adapted an existing religious idea of resurrection and, and projected it onto Jesus. And yet, contrary to this myth, not many in the surrounding culture at that time actually believed in, for them, what was a present-day resurrection. Greeks believed that uh, the, the goal of life was to escape the material world, and once they were gone, they did not want to come back. Uh, for the Jews, the only resurrection uh, that they uh, talked about was the collective resurrection of the people of Israel at the end of time. Uh, so they weren't, they weren't borrowing. The disciples of Jesus weren't, and early church leaders, were not, were not, in fact, borrowing an existing idea because resurrection did not fit the worldview at the time. So 
instead, their, their existing faith just kind of blew up in this, to, to use Mark Clark's wording in the book. I mentioned Sean McDowell a moment ago. Uh, his father, Josh McDowell, who has, has been uh, an author for many years, um, many years ago was a, a university student who set out to disprove the resurrection and after two years of serious uh, study and research became a follower of Christ, realizing the, the, the veracity of the, uh, the resurrection. But in his, uh, Josh McDowell's teaching entitled The Resurrection Factor, he says, the centerpiece of the Christian faith is the resurrection. It's what the writer in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, stressed in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he said that if, if, the, if there's no resurrection, then we, we got nothing. I don't think that's proper English. Uh, sorry, kids. Uh, really, Christianity crumbles if the resurrection didn't happen. And, and that, of course, makes sense. And that's what he's saying. McDowell continues. He says, Oxford University professor Thomas Arnold uh, from the early 1800s said, I know, of no one, uh, I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence than that Christ died and rose again from the dead. That's an amazing statement. An amazing statement from someone not a Jesus follower. The evidence is strong for the fact that the resurrection of Jesus happened, as the New Testament record says. Um, if you'll invest time in research yourself, um, I, you may be surprised in what you find. So, now what? A few times in this message, you've heard me ask the questions, was Jesus delusional? Was he lying? Or was he Lord of the universe? And is he Lord of the universe? C.S. Lewis, uh, author of uh, the Narnia Chronicles, points out in a, in a poignant paragraph in his excellent little book called Mere Christianity that we, that we can't get around the fact that we all have a decision to make about who Jesus is. And he puts it this way. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, <laughs> interesting, or he would be the devil of hell, who, by the way, Jesus referred to in the Gospel of John as the, the father of lies. So Lewis continues, he says, you must take your choice. Either Jesus was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. I am a Christ follower because Jesus went to the cross to die for me. He, he loved me that much. And you. I am a Christ follower because Jesus conquered death by his resurrection and was raised to life again by the power of God. He's that powerful. He came to this earth in, a, in an act of complete self-sacrifice to take the penalty of my sin upon himself so that I and you could live free and eternal 
in, in, in a personal and eternal relationship with God, our Creator, who knows us best and loves us most. I'm so grateful that it's not on me to be good enough to earn my way to God or to heaven. That, that's, that's the way of every other religion in the world, actually. New Testament Christianity is not a religion. At least Jesus did not intend it to be. I, I think sometimes Christians have maybe turned it into that, but that's not Jesus' intent. Christianity, New Testament Christianity is not religion. It's a relationship with God, our Creator. And here's a simple illustration to illustrate the difference uh, between the two. And, and some of you have, uh, is, I mean, this is extremely simple, but extremely uh, significant, I believe, this simple little illustration that some of you have heard me uh, share before. Two simple words, easy to remember. Religion is spelled D-O, do. You got to do more. You got to be better. You got to work harder to earn your way. That's religion and that's a burden. And that's not what Jesus intended. New Testament Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E, done. Everything Everything that needed to be done for you and I to know that we are in relationship with God now and forever with Him in heaven was done by Jesus Christ on the cross. That is freeing. And that is the gospel message. And gospel just simply means good news. That's definitely good news. Right now, you may well be aware that you're staring some truth in the face, <laughs> that, that, that maybe you never acknowledged before or thought too much before, or maybe you're, you're still in the place of uh, uncertainty and you, you wanna uh, drill down a little bit. Don't let, don't let those questions just be you know, pushed aside. Uh, address them, and, and we want to help you in that. And you can text a cell number at the end of the message that we'll, that we'll give you to, to be able to do that, for us to be able to help you. Jesus asks us, God asks us to repent of our sin. In other words, that just simply means to turn away from our old way of living and surrender to him as the forgiver of our sin and the leader of our life. What, what could possibly be keeping you from entrusting your life and your future and your eternity into the hands of a God who loves you so much that he went to the cross for you? The Father sending His Son and Jesus, the Son of God, going voluntarily. What could keep you from expressing your desire today in, in, a, in words, in a prayer? And again, it's not about how you pray it. God knows your heart and your desire if it's to surrender to Jesus Christ, to recognize Him as the God of the universe, the Lord of the universe, truly, and submit your life to Him for Him to be the leader of your life. That would be a, an awesome thing to do at any time, but certainly on Easter Sunday. And if that is your desire and you, you'd want to make that step today by faith, stepping across that line of faith into God's eternal family, pray with me like this. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to go to the cross and to die for me, to show me how much you love me. 
Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross willingly because you knew it would allow for a reconnection, an eternal relationship and connection with the God who loves me most and knows me best, the creator of the universe and the creator of me. Thank you for being the bridge by which I can get to God in relationship. A relationship that is deep and intimate and personal and eternal and real. God, I receive your grace today. I turn from my sin and I surrender my life to you. Please be the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life from this day forward. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.